This is Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Our guest this week is Tanisa Islam, and she is the director at South Dakota Voices for Peace and South Dakota Voices for Justice. In just a moment, Tanisa is going to be with us and tell us all about what she is up to there. Remember that you can find us on social media. Also, email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. This is Heartstock and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. In just a moment, we shall be back. For you and me. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw Thanks for tuning in this evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and our guest this week is Tanisa Islam. She is the executive director at South Dakota Voices for Peace and South Dakota Voices for Justice. Hi, Tanisa. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, and thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. Can you please give our listeners a little intro here to what it is that you're doing there at South Dakota Voices for Peace? State of South Dakota since 2014. And previous to that, I did a civil rights um, employment discrimination law in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so I've merged those things together as we saw a rise in anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant and refugee bills, resolutions, both at the state city and county level throughout our state in 2017. And we came together organically, a group of us who were motivated to fight these things um, in early 2017. And we became an organization. Our C4 arm, which is our direct lobbying arm, as you mentioned, is South Dakota Voices for Justice. And we've defeated 83% of these bills and resolutions in our state capital since 2017. And then we have our C3 arm, which is where we do our education, advocacy, civic engagement, and provide legal services and rapid response work through South Dakota Voices for Peace. And what's your background? How long have you been in South Dakota there? Where are you from originally? Give us a little background. Um, Sure. I was born and raised in mid-Michigan in a town called Bay City. Uh, My parents are immigrants from Bangladesh. So I grew up in what would commonly be called a rural, rural area. But Michigan, when I was growing up, it was very diverse. And, you know, we lived in the auto industry area. So there were a lot of unions and a lot of civic engagement work that was going on. So that's the environment I grew up in. My husband, son, and I moved to Sioux Falls in 2012, and we have been here since. And what brought you to Sioux Falls? Um, uh, mo- mainly, it was my husband's job that brought us here, and we were living in the Twin Cities beforehand. And <clears throat> I had pretty stressful jobs when I was there working for a nonprofit organization in the city of Minneapolis in their civil rights department. So we thought it would be a good change of pace raising our first son. And so we moved here. 
Can you tell me a little bit about your educational background? Because you, you're an attorney. Where did you go to school? And did you always know that you wanted to focus on what does the, the general umbrella immigration and immigration law? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, being born in the United States, immigrant parents, there are conversations that I grew up hearing all the time, which would include, you know, how do I bring my brother or sister or mom or dad over here? I really wish they could come to my wedding, for example. None of my family, which live in Bangladesh, were given visas to travel to the United States when I got married um, several years ago. So just these immigration questions were something that I grew up with. I went to Hamlin Law School in St. Paul, Minnesota, and which is now a combination of two law schools in St. Paul, William Mitchell and Hamlin combined. And it was really through my experience at Hamlin through hands-on immigration clinics and human rights clinics that I knew that immigration law was something that I wanted to do. Immigration court is a regional system. So the immigration court for North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota is actually located in Fort Snelling, Minnesota. So the overwhelming majority of immigration lawyers for our region are located in the Twin Cities. So I didn't have an opportunity to get an immigration law job right out of law school. But I engaged in civil rights advocacy and employment discrimination issues with Muslim immigrant and refugee communities specifically through being the civil rights director at the Council on American Islamic Relations Minnesota chapter. And at the same time, I was a complaint investigator for the city of Minneapolis's civil rights department. So even though I wasn't practicing immigration law directly, I was working with immigrant refugee Muslim communities and fighting for their rights in the workplace primarily. So South Dakota has a lot of opportunity to do this work. We only have maybe six or seven immigration attorneys in our state as a whole. Um, There are no free immigration law services until we at South Dakota Voices for Peace launched those services in November of 2019. And we serve only two groups of people who are in our state, which are unaccompanied minor children from Central America primarily. These are the kids that we see coming to our southern border through a process. They make their way to South Dakota. They've entered our country without any parents or guardians. That's why they're termed um, unaccompanied minors. And so once they get here, they are in immigration court proceedings um, because that is the process, but they had no access to legal services for attorneys to help them find a way to citizenship is what our job is. And then we also serve immigrants who are already here who are survivors of violence. The the majority of those clients are actually undocumented immigrants who are domestic violence survivors. So we're doing some really critical work in terms of legal services. And these two groups of people are really, have really special pathways to citizenship because of the nature of their status. Um, And so they really do have a much higher chance of hope and being able to stay in this country lawfully and eventually become a citizen. So I've always worked in building power in communities. And so 
I kind of brought everything that I know into the work that's being done through the two organizations at South Dakota Voices for Peace and South Dakota Voices for Justice. With your very personal experience um, having immigrant parents, do you have a recollection, you know, what age did you come to the United States and do you have a recollection of their process entering here? And um, do you remember, like, were you old enough to see how that may have changed their individual lives coming here from Bangladesh? I was actually born in the United States. I was born and raised in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So, no, I mean, I don't, I have stories of how my parents immigrated here. You know, they, my dad is a physician, a retired physician. So back in the early 80s, there was a big push in the United States to provide visas to foreign medical personnel. And so he came in that wave. And so they were really fortunate, even though they were from a very rural, impoverished nation, they came with what we call a golden ticket, right? They had a job in their hand, even though they had two suitcases and $50 in their pockets when they arrived in the shores. But I mean, I've had the great privilege to be able to go back to my parents' home country in Bangladesh um, and see where my parents came from and what it really means for them to be here and see what they've built. So I think everyone has that potential. You know, some people just have a, um, a straight path to citizenship here and some people don't. And that's because of like life circumstances. And I strongly believe that everyone deserves a chance um, to make a better life. And so that's why I do the work that I do. And you said that someone in your family had a job and that was one of the reasons that they had a good path to citizenship. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there are not several ways that you can become a citizen, right, according to the U.S. immigration law system. One way is if you have a job and your employer sponsors you and you can come on a specific work visa and that can lead you to a path of citizenship. And that's what my father had. He had a job and his employer sponsored him to come here into the United States and be a doctor um, with a, a specific hospital. Um, And the other way you can come lawfully to the United States is through family relationships. If you are a U.S. citizen already, um, your wife, your children, and your parents can come here through you. Oftentimes, it's referred to sponsorship. If you're a lawful permanent resident, it's only your wife and children. And down the road, you can bring siblings, but it, on average, it takes about 15 to 20 years to bring family members who are your siblings if you're a U.S. citizen. So other than that, there really is no other lawful way to be here through work or through family. There are humanitarian ways to be here, such as what we're seeing at the border right now. People can come to our country lawfully and ask for asylum. So asylum is considered a human humanitarian path to citizenship. So in general, having someone sponsor you to be able to come here is a golden ticket to becoming a citizen because there really is no other way through our legal system to do so. You know, this is kind of, it's very timely for me personally. I've been listening to Ugly Truth 
which is the the book that the was recently written by investigative journalists about Facebook. And I also have been kind of touring our local history here as it relates to Native Americans and our one of our previous guests, is a Native American woman. And I think it's good to get different perspectives. As a white woman, my experience growing up in the West and then later on traveling and living in other states... I'm sure it's much different than yours was as a, a, a practicing Muslim woman and a, a child of immigrant parents. We have had such a long and sordid history of white supremacy. And I'm just wondering, when you went to, when you went to, the, to South Dakota from Michigan, where it sounds like it was more diverse did you encounter, I mean, it, it seems like it's a very timely, especially with the Trump administration and all the anti-Muslim rhetoric that was kind of amplified using Facebook and other social media platforms. Um, can you give us your perspective of all of this kind of white <laughs> well, that's, a, that's like a five-hour conversation. Yes, absolutely. yes, I know. I realize this, but as best you can... Try to help our yeah, listeners. Yeah, I mean, understand. I think this is my life's work, right? I've been yes. fighting bigotry and discrimination against Muslims, refugees, and immigrants since about, I would say, since 2001, um, post 9 11, which was a tragic and horrible act of terrorism that happened on our lands, but the impact on Muslim communities specifically and the impact on innocent communities where people were perceived to be Muslim because we now know from data that hate crimes against uh, men who were turbans who are not Muslim were actually targeted more than Muslims in the beginning. So, I mean, it's a really complicated, really complicated question. I mean, I'll talk about it through my work lens. I mean, that's why we started South Dakota Voices for Justice is because we were seeing legislation, you know, that would impact everyday lives here in our state, which was to ban refugee resettlement, which was to declare Islam as a religion of terrorism, which was to vilify Muslim sounding names. I mean, I mean, and the list goes on and on. We've defeated 14, 12 out of 14 of these bills and resolutions in our state, state capital alone, just from 2017, which was post Trump election cycle to 2019. And coincidentally, we started tracking what we call Islamophobic hate speakers who were coming to our region, rural America. And so if you think about it, rural America is prime and fertile ground to really nourish the seeds of fear that are planted by bigotry and media that is pushing these messages. So we find it really important to be present, to be led by Muslim immigrant and refugees who are staff um, and do the work here and to be very visible. So since 2017, we've tracked over 36 
Islamophobic hate speakers and events that happened just in South Dakota. So, I mean, I can't imagine how many have come to Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, but it became really important for us to track this and create the data necessary to show people that the Islamophobic network, which has been identified by various think tanks, the first think tank to do so was the Center for American Progress. And you can see their report on their website, which is entitled Fear Inc. and Fear Inc. 2.0. So they show this very intricate maze and puzzle, if you will, of Islamophobic network, which includes media, which includes activists, which includes foundations providing money. I mean, there have been millions and millions of dollars that has gone through this network to push this fear of hate. You know, the Trump administration was a symptom of what has been growing in what I would call rural America. You know, the efforts to delegitimize a faith, Islam practiced by over 1 billion people worldwide started in around 2011, 2012 by this movement to enact what is oftentimes termed anti-Sharia legislation across the country. And this effort was really to say that Islam is not a religion, but a political ideology. And we have to make sure that this religion can't somehow change our constitution, right? Which anyone who knows how the constitution changes um, should last. But the problem is over 18 states have passed that legislation, including South Dakota in 2012. So this is a really, really intricate, very strategic thing that is happening. And I think sometimes, most of the times, people don't understand that this is a strategy of hate, of fear-mongering, of delegitimizing, and how that impacts not only communities, but the targets of that hate, specifically Muslims, immigrants, and refugees. So that's why it becomes really important for us to do the work that we do in trying to demystify these myths to tell, you know, provide facts so people can make more informed decisions um, about who we are as a people and, and how we are a part of the fabric of this country dating back to um, the beginning. And we're going to delve more deeply into this in just a moment. We're going to take our quick midway point break here and we will be right back with Tanisa Islam. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Tanisa Islam. We're just talking about the work that she's doing in South Dakota there, 
She's an attorney, and she's the director at South Dakota Voices for Peace and South Dakota Voices for Justice. And why the two organizations? Peace and Justice, I mean, these are very lofty and wonderful ideas and terms. And I'm just kind of curious, uh, why the two organizations? And yeah, I have so many questions for you. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, the simple answer is uh, IRS regulations, because nonprofit C3 organizations have really strict rules around direct lobbying, like we do in peer, like we do at our state capitol and city council meetings. So that's why we created our C4 organization, which is the standards for lobbying are much more open to that work. Um, And we believe very strongly that there can be no peace without justice. And that means fighting for the equity of all people in our state. So we walk alongside everyone who's dismantling bigotry and racism in our state while we concentrate on immigrant, refugee, and Muslim rights and equitable access to what the state provides. And why rural America? I mean, this is a phenomenon that we're really seeing some trends and, you know, as far as anti-Muslim speech and hate groups that are growing and Trump supporters. I mean, I know that not all Trump supporters support anti-Muslim speech, you know, and I'm not trying to generalize here, but as trends go there does seem to be an higher incidence of this in middle America and rural America. Do you have a take on this? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I think it really comes down to there's not that many of us in states like this, right? I mean, I was, as a part of the State Bar Association um, and being on several different committees, committees. I was asked to go to the law school here at USD several years ago and talk to the students of color who are in law school to see how we could support them more at the bar and attorneys of color in the state. During that conversation, a young man stepped in and, you know, said, what are you guys talking about? And we just said, you know, this is what we're talking about go ahead and come join us. He was a white male. And he said, you know, the the first time I have had a black friend is right here. And he pointed to the young man sitting right next to him. And that was in law school. So this person went through at least 25, 24 years of his life, never having a black person as his friend. So those those moments in doing this work are really critical to understand. So when you don't even see someone in your community or your great grocery store or the gas station, it is really easy to fear them. And that really is what the the fear that we're trying to dismantle by being present, by being vocal, by sharing our stories and really reshaping how people think of who is South Dakotan specifically and who is American. I mean, there is ample historical evidence that Muslims came to explore the United States before Columbus did, for example. I mean, there's a really rich history of Islam in the United States that dates back, unfortunately, to slavery. Um, And African-American Muslims in the United States are the largest ethnic, racial Muslim group here. We've come to the end of our program for today. We did lose a slight bit of audio 
little computer glitch, but uh, I did want to thank Tanisa for sharing her story here on Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and um, as usual, we'd like to share how you might reach out uh, if you're interested in learning more about South Dakota Voices for Peace. They have a website, which is sdvfpeace.org. That's S as in Sam, D as in David, B as in Victor, F as in Frank, peace.org. Tanisa is also on LinkedIn, where you can also find more information about her work. T-A-N-E-E-Z-A, Islam, I-S-L-A-M. And thanks once again, Tanisa, for sharing your story here on Heartstock. As usual, we'll be back next week with some interesting guests. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Peace.
Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on the other side.